Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job, Job chapter 1. And these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. And they'll give you one of those, and it is marked at Job chapter 1 for you. Job chapter 1. Some years ago, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a best-selling book titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in it, he argued that God is not all-perfect and all-powerful. And, quote, there are some things God cannot control. Now, this was his way of dealing with the issue that's raised in the title of that book. That bad things and good people don't go together. No one will ever write a book titled, When Bad Things Happen to Bad People. Or when good things happen to good people, because those are expected. Bad people deserve bad things, good people good. But bad things happening to good people arrests our attention. Because it violates our sense of justice. That's one of the major questions addressed in the section of God's word that we begin considering this morning. The book of Job is about a man by that name. A man who was very good. In fact, God's assessment of him is found in the very first verse. This man was blameless and upright. In chapter 2 and verse 3, the Lord again says of him, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. And yet this very good man suffered several staggering catastrophes. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 1. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So while Job's family is enjoying a party, he gets the news that his oxen and donkeys have been stolen and the servants who oversaw them were murdered. Now this party is probably a birthday party for the oldest son because back in verse 4 it says it was the habit of Job's ten children to get together to celebrate their birthdays. And now they're celebrating at the oldest brother's place. So while all is right with the world in Job's family, and they're demonstrating their closeness as a family at a birthday party, meanwhile his property is stolen and his servants are killed. Verse 3 says that Job had 500 each of oxen and donkeys. Now that's the very bad news, of course, but before he's had time to process what's happened, verse 16 says this, While that surviving messenger was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. In addition to losing his oxen and donkeys and their servant guardians, he's now lost his 7,000 sheep and more servants due to what was probably a lightning strike because that fire from heaven phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to to lightning, that lightning starting a fatal fire. 
So that's still more bad news. But while he's taking all of that in, verse 17 says, while that surviving messenger was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, 7,000 sheep, and now is 3,000 camels. And all their attendant servants are murdered. And so Job's livelihood has been wiped out. But the tragedy is not over. And the news this time comes from the very location of that oldest son's birthday party. Verse 18 says, While that surviving messenger was still speaking, Yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. A tornado has come and taken the lives of Job's ten children. And with the other reports, the Bible does not record any reaction from Job with those other messengers that came. But when he hears of the death of all his children, children on whose behalf it was Job's regular custom, we're told earlier in the chapter, to offer sacrifice to God. When he hears that they are gone, verse 20 says this. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And both of those were common ways to express grief at that time. So all that we're told about of the favorable circumstances of Job in verses 2 and 3 regarding his wealth and his well-being. That he has ten children who were close to one another and close to him. That he had hundreds of oxen and donkeys, thousands of sheep and camels, many, many servants. All of it is taken away in what we've read in seven verses. And all of it on one day. A day in which his family is in celebration. And the devastation comes in waves, one after the other, in just a matter of hours. Now, why did God let these extremely bad things happen to this extraordinarily good man? We're closer to home. A conscientious, faithful worker loses his job through no fault of his own because the company decides to downsize. Or why does a loving mother or father receive a diagnosis of cancer, succumb shortly thereafter, and leave a devastated family behind? Or why does a loving mother and father receive a diagnosis for their child? And they lose the little one that they've longed for and loved. Why in 2007 did the I-35 bridge in Minnesota collapse and kill 13 people and injure 145 more? In 1994, Pastor Scott Willis, his wife and six of their nine children were in the family van headed to Watertown, Wisconsin to see their son at Bible college. A truck in front of them dropped a piece of metal on the freeway. Their van hit it. It lodged underneath. It punctured the gas tank. The gas tank exploded. 
and the six children died. Why did that happen to this good man and his family? The list of questions is endless because the list of seemingly random tragedies is so numerous. We could ask about the people who were killed while praying in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, due to the hatred of a racist gunman. Or we could ask about the murder of police officers in Dallas who were targeted and killed by an equally racist assassin. These are all very difficult issues that we must address carefully. And we must base our answers on truth from God's word. That's what we're going to try to begin to do today and in the few weeks ahead as we look at this book of Job. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, our minds are sober, somber. Our hearts are troubled. As we just think about how immense is the difficulty, the suffering of living in this fallen world. We each have our own forms of that suffering and trial. And each of us has questions about what's behind it. Lord, you've given us direction in your word. We don't know everything that you know. You know infinitely more than we do about all that you are bringing to pass. But you have given us instruction of your, in your word about yourself and about your purposes that we can learn from and that we can cling to in the times in which we will, not if, we all will suffer difficulty. And so, Lord, we ask you to teach us, teach us today and in the weeks to come through your the story of your servant Job. And help us, Lord, to apply, to readily receive, and then to be able to glorify you because of the truth that you've given us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we begin this brief series, I want to make the biblical case in this opening message for a couple of foundational truths that underlie what we're going to see in the story of Job and in the suffering that we all experience. I want us to see two of those today, and I have them for you in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And the first is this. God is, I say, unfair. And I'll stay with me. I'll explain that. God is unfair, and it's a good thing. God is unfair, and it's a good thing. Now, when I say God is unfair, I do not mean God is unjust. God is absolutely righteous. And he is just, and he will always dispense justice. But sometimes he gives more than justice, as we're going to see in a bit. But in his dealings with us, we need to understand that, as I say in the outline, we never get less than we deserve. We never get less than we deserve. Even Job, as amazingly good as he was, did not receive less than he deserved. Because God's goodness does not mean, or excuse me, Job's goodness does not mean sinlessness. Job was good, very good, but he was not sinless. In fact, Job himself acknowledges as much in chapter 7 and verse 21, where he asks about the pardoning of his offenses and the forgiveness of his sins. Job was good, he was very good, in the only way, though, that sinful people can be good. 
And that is he was relatively good. Relative to other people, compared to other people, Job was wonderful. But the ultimate standard is the character of God. And Job did not meet that standard just as no one else does. In the midst of all the bad things that happen to us, we naturally ask why. But we first need to understand our own guilt. Now, I'm not saying that we did something that was the immediate cause of whatever difficulty we may be experiencing right now. In fact, in the examples I gave earlier and in the life of Job, none of these were things caused by something the individual had done that was a cause for those horrible effects. But while we're often not guilty of a particular sin that led to our particular suffering, the people driving on that bridge in Minnesota didn't do something to cause it to collapse. But we have all done something to create a world. Now hear this. We've all done something to create a world in which bridges collapse. And the bad things that generally take place. And what is that something that we've all, all of us done to create the environment in which these calamities happen? Well, bear with me as I remind us all of how bad things started in the first place. And they started when we sinned. And that goes back millennia to our first parents, to Adam and Eve and their disobedience. When Adam sinned, we sinned. Now, we don't normally think of it that way. We think Adam sinned and now we're holding the bag. Thanks, Adam. We all can't wait to meet you in heaven and have a word with you in the parking lot. But how is it that I'm responsible for that? We think when we read of the first human sin in the opening chapters of the Bible, Adam did something with horrible consequences, but I'm not, I'm not too bad. But hear this, friends. We're guilty of what Adam did, even if we don't feel guilty about it. That we suffer as a result of Adam's sin is explicitly taught in your Bible. In Romans chapter 5, we see the following. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. That passage goes on to say, Many died by the trespass of the one man. One trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So there's no way to avoid the obvious teaching of the Bible that Adam's sin is our sin. But how can that be? How can one man's action be attributed to other people who were not there? Well, here's one illustration of that. If you hire a hitman to kill someone for you, and they catch the hitman, and he turns you in, both of you are culpable for that that crime. Both of you have that issue. And so you would then respond to that illustration rightly by saying, but I didn't hire Adam. (laughs) If I had been there, I would have done something different or I would have hired somebody better than Adam. That bozo obviously messed up. God chose Adam, not us. And if I don't get to choose my representative, then you can't put his actions on me. Theologian R.C. Sproul, I think, does a good job of explaining. He says this. 
Even if we have the right to choose our own representatives, we have no guarantee that our wishes will be carried out. Who among us has not been enticed by politicians who promise one thing during an election campaign and do another after they are elected? The reason we want to select our own representative is so that we can be sure we're accurately represented. But even when we choose our own, we're not always represented well. He says that no time in all of human history have we been more accurately represented than in the Garden of Eden. To be sure, we did not choose our representative there. Our representative was chosen for us. But the one who chose our representative was Almighty God. And when God chooses our representative, he does it perfectly. His choice is an infallible choice. When I choose my representatives, I do it fallibly. Sometimes I select the wrong person and I'm then inaccurately represented. Adam represented me infallibly, not because he was infallible, but because God is infallible. And given God's infallibility, I can never argue that Adam was a poor choice to represent me. The assumption many of us make when we struggle with the fall is that had we been there, we would have made a different choice. That we would not have made a decision that would plunge the world into ruin. But such an assumption is just not possible given the character of God. God doesn't make mistakes. His choice of my representative is greater than my choice of my own. And so, friends, as we think about suffering, we think about our suffering, we need to understand this about ourselves. We had a perfect environment in which a good God had placed us, and we chose to rebel against him. That choice resulted in the sin and sickness and death that we now experienced. So let's ask then, what is deserved by everyone? Given that rebellion, given that we did that, what is deserved for us? The Bible answers that. The wages of sin is death. We not only sinned originally, though, we continue to sin, the Bible tells us. James chapter 3 says we all sin in many ways. And that sin that we commit makes us liable for the penalties that go with breaking God's law. It's not just, you know, we mess up a little bit. When we sin, God sees that sin as breaking all of his law. James 2, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. So we got to get this, dear friends. We have to have this. It's foundational. That's why the Bible starts with it. And our reading of Job has to be informed then by it. That we've committed treason against God and that we continue to commit treason against God. And it may well be true that I don't deserve this particular thing in the sense that I didn't do something that was its direct cause. But I did do something to create this fallen world. We've all contributed to the fallen environment in which we experience our own pain and suffering. The immediate cause may be actions of others, actions outside our control. But the ultimate cause is sin, our sin. We're surprised by suffering. We're surprised when that diagnosis comes or when that mishap Occurs, But if it's true that we live in a fallen world that our sin brought on, then we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. We should, in fact, be grateful that, that, that there's ever any good at all. 
You know, friends, it should actually be the other way around. We're surprised when things go bad. We should be surprised when things go good and go well. And that's why I've said in your outline that it's good that God's unfair. That is, it's good that God does not give us what we deserve. We never get less than we deserve. None of us. I say in your outline as well, we often get more than we deserve. We never get less. But in God's goodness and his mercy, we often get more. Okay, so it's true. I'm guilty of sin, sin that resulted in the world that's making my life lousy now. So if God is just and will will always do justice, as you said, then how can he give me more than I deserve? Doesn't he have to punish me for my sin? That's a good question, and the answer is this. Yes, God does need to punish sin if he's just. But he does not necessarily need to punish you for your sin. Instead, in his love, he's provided a substitute to take your punishment. And that's why the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's because God has provided this substitute, this atonement, this covering for our sin, that God can be just. He's poured out his wrath. The penalty has been paid on the cross by Christ as our substitute. God is still just and at the same time loving for doing it that way. And so the psalmist can say, the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve. The reason that you're a Christian, the reason that I'm I'm a Christian, if we are, is because God has not treated us as, as we deserve, and in fact has given us more than we deserve. That's what we mean by grace. This unmerited favor from God. So Ephesians chapter 2 says, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So thank God that we do not get what we deserve. God is unfair, but he's unfair in his grace and our favor. Grace gives us more than we deserve. When bad things happen to us, They inevitably do so in a fallen world. They will inevitably happen. It's not a question of if, but when. And when that happens, we need to remember an important aspect of the gospel. And that is that God is unfair, but that's a good thing. And secondly, in your outline, we need to remember God is unbound. And it's a comforting thing. God is not bound. He is unbound. And that should be a comforting thing for us. Most of us live not only thinking that we're not guilty and therefore have gotten less or worse than we deserve, but we also live with what's called retribution theology. That's the idea that if I do right things, then things will go well, and if I do wrong things, then things will be bad. Now, I normally think of the word retribution in negative terms. Retribution is is punishment, as in some of you are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan. And during the campaign of 1980, he promised swift and sure retribution to the Iranians who were holding our people hostage. But retribution can also be positive. It's just repayment, whether for good or evil. 
And many of us have this mistaken notion that if I uphold my end of the bargain and do what God says, then his response is to ensure that things go well. And we come by this mistaken notion honestly because it's taught in the Bible, sort of. I'm going to show you where it's taught in the Bible, sort of, and explain. But in your outline, I say God is unbound. That's a comforting thing. And he's not bound by a couple things. He's not bound by precedent. He's not bound by precedent. That is, he's not bound by what our observation has seen happen before, previously, what's preceded. He's not bound by precedent. Now, what is the precedent? What is it that God has said is the normal course of the way things go? Well, the book of Proverbs gives that to us. And Proverbs, you'll remember, is a book of wisdom. And it's a book of, as the name suggests, proverbial wisdom. And proverbial wisdom is this. It is general truths that occur in the normal course of life, but Proverbs were never intended to be legal guarantees. That's what a proverb is. So if you see a proverb and then you see an instance where that didn't happen, it doesn't mean the proverb was wrong. It simply means that that's a general truth. Generally, that's what happens, but it doesn't happen at every instance. So the book of Proverbs says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. Well, you see exceptions to that, don't you? I mean, Donald Trump could be president. So who's getting blessed there? Or Hillary Clinton might be president. And who's getting blessed there? Proverbs says as well, before a downfall, the heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. That is, you see a downfall, it's generally because you have a haughty person. Or... If you see someone being honored, someone being raised up, it's generally humility that preceded that. Generally. Proverbs goes on to say, The righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. But of course, there are instances where that's reversed. But remember, these Proverbs are general truths. They're not legal guarantees. And that's why I've titled this series, When bad things happen to God's people, to God's people, because God's people are the people who are trying to do this stuff. And it's God's people who therefore can have this retribution idea that I've done the right things. Therefore, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? But this retribution theology is generally true, but God is not bound rigidly to it. It is generally true that if you live a certain way, things go a certain way. It is generally true that the results follow the input, but not always. And God is not bound by that. He is bound by his promises to us. His character requires that, but he's not bound by retribution theology. We say, I don't deserve this, meaning I've upheld my end of the bargain, and now look what has happened. Implying God has not upheld his. When something happens, friends, hear this, and you begin to think about all you've done for the Lord, you know that you failed to grasp your own culpability as a sinner. 
and you have bought into retribution theology. This is happening to me after I've done this, 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 and this. God is not bound by precedent. And I say in your outline, God is not bound by persons. God is not bound by persons. Now, I hope in this group, most of you who have been here before, and many, many of you often, <laughs> that you understand that God is not bound by you as a person, by me as a person. That we don't tell God what to do. Now, that should be obvious, but, you know, there's TV preachers. And there's like Kenneth Copeland, who says, and I'm quoting, your words are more powerful than God. So you tell God what to do. You name it and you claim it. But God is not bound by persons. And so the prophet Isaiah says, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? God is not bound by us. No one tells God what to do or how to do it. And God is not bound by another person as well, namely the person of the accuser, Satan. We're going to see Satan in our study of the book of Job. We're going to see that he was involved in this episode that happened to Job. But as we do, friends, understand from the very outset that as Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. The devil has never been outside the control of God, never, not for a moment. From the very first moment that the serpent appeared in the garden, God tells him what to do. Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and then he pronounces consequences on the serpent. This is what's going to happen to you. Who's in control there? When you get to the end of your Bible, in the very last book, in the close of human history, in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible says he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Who's in control? He's not bound by our demands. He is not bound by Satan. We don't have two equally opposing forces out there. This is, I said in your outline then, for us to be comforting. And here's why it should be comforting. That God is unbound. It should be comforting because it means that there is nothing that can keep God from accomplishing His good purpose. There is no thing and no one who can keep God from accomplishing the good purpose He has, even in the bad thing. So friends, let me conclude by reminding you that, that God has purposes that we do not see. The title of this message at the top of the outline is More Than Meets the Eye. There is more than meets our physical eye going on. God has purposes that we do not see. In the case of Job, verses 6 through 12 of chapter 1 tell us that God was testing Job, but Job didn't know that. He could not see what God was doing, just as we often cannot see what God's doing. But we know, or we should know, that all that God is doing is for our good. And whether we act on that knowledge will determine the outcome of the trial. Let me say that again, whether we act on the knowledge that God has given us, that what he is doing is for our good, whether we act on that 
will determine the outcome of that trial. How we choose to experience the trial is a key factor in whether our trial will result in good or ill. I quickly remind you that James said in chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, why? Why should I consider it that? Because, he goes on to say, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is always God's good purpose. But that good result is not automatic. We're to be active, not passive in the process. And we choose how to respond to what God brings our way for his good purpose. If we don't respond the right way, James in that chapter goes on to say this. But in the trial, each person is tempted when this happens, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The truth is bad things happen to God's people. But a Christian has at his disposal the ability to rise above the circumstances and to see those circumstances from God's perspective. Our lives are like a tapestry that God's weaving. The problem is that we often have a very narrow view of our circumstances. We focus on the immediate difficulty. We look at the bottom of that tapestry. Have you ever seen the bottom, the backside of a tapestry? Nothing beautiful there. It looks like a tangled mess of threads. But it's only when you look at the top of that that you see the beauty, the symmetry, the pattern that's being woven. We need to look at the top of the tapestry of our lives, viewing it from God's perspective, seeing it from God's side, understanding what He is weaving. Pastor Colin Smith gives an illustration of someone spending a week in a dark In a dark pit. And he's told you're going to spend this week in this dark pit. But only one week and then you'll be out and you'll never go there again. This person's dropped into this dark pit and it's dark and it's smelly. Feels around on the sides and it's, it's sharp. He even gets, he even gets cut. And doesn't pursue anything good out of this experience. Instead, depression sets in, spends the week wondering why this ever happened. As the week ends, as promised, this person is released. And as they are released, they're glad that this ordeal is finally over. And as they're leaving the pit, they turn back and they see a sign there and they can't believe what they're reading. They had spent this week in a diamond mine. And there were gems there to be mined in that trial and in that pit. And God is doing something that you don't see every time, every time. I mentioned Rabbi Kushner and his solution to the problem, saying God simply can't figure it out. When that bridge collapsed on I-35 in Minnesota, he was on Minnesota Public Radio. And some of you know who Pastor John Piper is. John Piper is in Minnesota. He heard him being interviewed. And Kushner was saying, you know, God would help it if he could, but there's nothing that he can do about it. And John Piper wrote a a blog entry responding to that. He had a number of good things to say, but one of them was this. That we need to understand that there is nothing that happens, including the collapse of a bridge, that is random. And when you suffer, friends, and something happens to you, it should be comforting to you to know that this doesn't happen at random. That the good hand of our God 
is at work in whatever happens. That family, Pastor Willis and those six lost children that I told you about, that incident uncovered that that truck driver had a license only because he had paid a bribe to get it. That investigation led to the discovery of widespread wrongdoing in the state government of Illinois, and it ultimately led to the resignation of its corrupt governor. Can you believe that? Here's the deal. It always turns out. Sometimes you get to see how it turns out. Most times you don't. But it always turns out as God intended. Sometimes not in this life, sometimes in the next. And ultimately, this question of why bad things happen to God's people gets to this. What is God like? And in the midst of the trial, I do not know the specific end game. I don't know exactly what it is that God will work for good through it. All I have is His promise that He will. And whether you believe that promise depends on what you think about the character of God. So here's what I recommend. Though you can't see God's goodness in the trial at the moment, you can see God's goodness all the time if you remember this. That the God who brought this, that God has come to earth, has become one of us, has suffered himself and died for us. In the midst of your thing, whatever that thing is, God is for you. And the Bible says that explicitly in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the midst of the pit when you can't see? See, faith is belief. Believing, trusting when you can't see. And that's why I say in your take-home truth, how we grieve shows what we believe. How we grieve, how we go through difficulty, shows what we believe. It's not that we grieve. We all grieve. We should grieve. It's how we grieve. And that shows if we believe and trust God. Let's bow together, friends. Our Father and our God, we thank you for instructing us in your word about your character, about your sovereignty, about your control of your world. Lord, it is accurate to say then that you are a dictator. No one tells you what to do. You tell your creation what to do. Lord, you not only tell us and show us and demonstrate for us that you are great and that you are sovereign, but you are also good. And so you are not only a dictator, you are a benevolent dictator. And that is how you can work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. So, Lord, in the midst of our circumstances, help us to remember that. And when we can't see what you are doing in the immediate circumstance, help us to look to the cross of Jesus and remember that it shows us how good, how very good our God is and that you are for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.